As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. The world is at war. U.S. President Joe Biden is visiting Israel this week to show support in the aftermath of the deadliest attack in that country's history. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin is visiting China, where he is likely to ask for more economic support as he continues his war in Ukraine. And amid both of these wars, a major complicating factor on another continent, in Washington, D.C., where as of this taping on Tuesday, October 17, America has now gone two weeks without a speaker in the House, and there could be all sorts of global ripple effects from that. Now, my guest today is just the person to speak with on all of this. In a storied 37-year career in the Army, David Petraeus rose up to command wartime U.S. troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. After his retirement, he won a 94-0 confirmation vote in the Senate to become the director of the CIA. He has a new book out called Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine, co-authored with the historian Andrew Roberts. We usually drop new episodes on Fridays. I'm afraid that that schedule has just gone out of the window recently as we've sought to keep up with the news. As of this recording, there is more and more news emerging of civilian casualties in Gaza. Just awful stuff. Remember, you can watch these interviews live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com live. And if you use the code FPLIVE, you can get a discount when you check out. For now, let's dive in. General Petraeus, welcome back to FP Live. Good to be with you. And as a dedicated watcher and listener, it really is a thrill to be with you. Ah, the pleasure is all ours. So, General, let's begin with the Middle East. I thought I'd begin with Israel's deliberations as it plans a ground operation in Gaza. Can you reflect on some of the challenges that the IDF is going to face? I can. I think this is a fiendishly difficult task uh, that they're about to embark on. But let me put it in perspective, because this is one of those cases where military action is absolutely necessary. It's imperative, uh, but it's not sufficient. Um, in the book, we actually, Andrew Roberts, my co-author and I, Baron Roberts of Belgravia, um, we went through all these cases, uh, all these different chapters of war since the end of World War II, and we went back and rewrote the introduction because we needed to emphasize how critical sound strategic leadership is. And we laid out an intellectual construct for that, which involves four tasks, the first of which is far and away the most important. So a strategic leader, Prime Minister Netanyahu in this case, and then for the military component, obviously the chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces, but the prime minister has to get the big ideas right. He has to understand the situation in a very nuanced way. And he has to craft the strategy uh, for going forward. He has to communicate that effectively. 
He has to oversee the implementation of the big ideas, what we often think of as leadership. And then you have to determine how you need to refine the big ideas. And you do that formally. It's on your battle rhythm, your schedule. And then you do it again and again and again. And in this case, the big ideas have to be more than just vengeance. That is not a strategy. There has to be a vision for what follows. Um, we recount in the book cases where, you know, there's quite impressive military action, uh, but we hadn't exactly thought through the phase four operations, the post-conflict phase. The most significant of these, uh, I'd contend, was uh, Iraq. Again, I was part of that. I was a two-star general at the time, division commander of the great 101st Airborne Division. I remember asking, actually, in Kuwait, you know, could you give us a little more detail on what happens after we get to Baghdad and, and take down the regime? And they said, you just get us to Baghdad, Dave, and we'll take it from there. Well, that was not adequate, to put it mildly. And then we compounded that with some seriously bad big ideas, such as firing the Iraqi military without telling them how they're going to provide for their families, and then firing the the Ba'ath Party, which included at a certain level all the bureaucrats that we actually needed to run the ministries nationally in Iraq and then in the province and district level as well. So, so General, if I may, uh, I, yeah. I, I'm getting the sense from you that maybe you're thinking that Israel isn't thinking or doesn't have a big vision in mind as it's embarking on the next few days. Actually, I suspect that, and I'm quite confident, in fact, that there is very serious dialogue going on. I know the Israeli Defense Force leaders, for example. I know Benny Gantz, who was the chief of staff of the IDF and then the Minister of Defense after retiring, uh, an opposition leader who joined uh, Netanyahu's wartime cabinet, this national unity cabinet. I am confident that they are sitting down and saying, Prime Minister, we need a vision for what follows, what will be. Uh, the life for the Palestinians uh, in Gaza? What about the life for them in the West Bank? Let's use this unspeakable uh, tragedy that's taken place as a catalyst to address that in the way that, say, this, the 1973 war ended up being a catalyst for, uh, again, a settlement between Israel and Egypt, noting that, yes, I got it. Uh, Henry Kissinger, you know, he only had to call about four or five people he could call the president of, of Egypt, Anwar Sadat. He could call Hafez al-Assad. He could call King Hussein in Jordan. He could call Golda Meir, perhaps a couple of others, and get a deal. And calling Hamas is a very different matter, uh, of course, because they're dedicated to the extermination uh, of the state of Israel and Israeli Jews. Um, but again, what is the vision then? Uh, if you merely go in and which is not easy in and of itself, and just mow the grass, you know, closer this time, perhaps all the way down to the dirt, but then just withdraw and hand it back to the Hamas political wing, you're going to see the Hamas military uh, elements, the terrorist side of that, uh, reconstitute itself. In fact, it's interesting to reflect on the mission that likely is given to the Israeli Defense Forces, which is probably destroy. That's a task, a doctrinal task, which means to uh, prevent the enemy uh, from being able to accomplish his mission without reconstitution. And you do that by going in, and, and again, in this very difficult context, still will be hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, uh, an enemy that presumably is, is as prepared and as creative as it was in the attack that they carried out, uh, so there will be improvised explosive devices, rooms that blow up, uh, suicide bombers, car bombs, everything. 
and you have high rises, not just small dwellings. You have to clear every building, every floor, every room, every basement, every tunnel. We know, for example, that it took the Iraqi uh, security forces, not the equal uh, to be sure, but it took them nine months to clear the Islamic State. I was just going to ask about that because, I mean, right. And you understand this so well, uh, how to fight Islamist militant groups and terrorist organizations. And it took so long in Iraq. And Israeli officials have said they plan to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. I mean, how feasible is that even? Well, again, the military leader's job is to ensure that they understand the task that they are given. You can have dialogue about it, perhaps influence it, because, of course, what's realistic has to intrude here as well. But at the end of the day, if they're told to destroy Hamas, uh, that's what they're going to have to do. Again, keep in mind, during the surge in Iraq, progressively, we we went into major urban areas, but nothing as difficult as this. But we did Ramadi, Fallujah. I mean, we segmented Fallujah into about 11 neighborhoods. We declared it a no-drive zone. No cars could go in there at all. They had to park outside and go through metal detectors and dogs for explosives and everything else. This is the kind of effort that is required. But that's not enough. That's doable. It'll be very, very costly, and the military will convey that to the prime minister. I'm very confident. There will be terrible civilian losses, and obviously there will be a staggering uh, amount of damage and destruction to civilian infrastructure. And again, part of the vision of what follows needs to be who will restore basic services, who will see to the immediate humanitarian uh, needs of the people, hundreds of thousands of whom have had to leave their homes and are displaced to southern Gaza. What will the vision for them be? These are incredibly difficult questions to answer. But they do need to have a vision. There does need to be at least a, a tentative answer to these questions. And I would contend it should be bigger than just Gaza. It should really address uh, those who are in the West Bank as well. Mm. What about America's role? So I think the U.S. has sent an aircraft carrier group, fighter jets to the region. Uh, some of that is in an effort to deter another front. There are also 2,000 U.S. troops uh, that will be on the ground there in a support role. Given your experience in this area, what do you think America's role needs to be? Well, I think America's gotten the big idea right, the biggest of the big ideas, which is to have Israel's back. But I believe it's much more than that. I, re I believe the reason that Secretary of State Blinken spent so much time out there, the president is going out there, is to sit down and to have a conversation about what we have been discussing. That's first and foremost. Again, get the big ideas right. Um, certainly having all these forces available, by the way, it's now two carrier task forces, which, which by the way, is what we had uh, in the U.S. Central Command uh, region. This is part of U.S. Central Command, the greater Middle East, uh, when I was the commander after the surge in Iraq and before Afghanistan. And they're beefing up the air power uh, in the region, probably providing additional uh, air and ballistic missile defenses, that, or at the very least, raising the readiness uh, of those systems that are out there. Keep in mind that we do have soldiers still in Iraq, in northeastern Syria, uh, and there are challenges there if the Iranian-supported uh, Shia militia seek to create problems. Uh, so again, we want to warn the Iranians. We want to try to dissuade them, to deter them uh, from taking actions, uh, first and foremost, to our men and women in uniform and, and others as well, but then also to be prepared for the what might be necessary 
uh, to respond to some kind of Iranian action. We're also, of course, trying to keep this from becoming regional. Uh, obviously, it'd be terrible if Hezbollah were to enter this. They have 150,000 uh, rockets that they could rain down on Israel, overwhelm the Iron Dome system, and so forth. But they remember what happened in 2006. They brought on themselves then by a raid into Israel and uh, kidnapping uh, two Israeli soldiers, uh, enormous destruction. Uh, and it took us many years, actually. I was the commander of Central Command when all of a sudden we, we reassessed how significant that destruction was to Hezbollah uh, and then reassessed it again when I was the CIA director. I don't think they want to have that visited on themselves again, but there could be pressure uh, from Iran. There could be pressure from their own people, depending on how this military operation in Gaza works out. There's a possibility of proxy Iranian Shia militia uh, coming through Syria as well. There has to be a worry again about uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank and even to a degree the Palestinians inside uh, Israel proper. So there are a huge number of issues. The U.S. having these forces available provides you options if they are necessary. But for right now, I think the focus really is on the dialogue with Israel to sort out what will follow. What is the post-conflict phase? And it has to be more, I think, than just um, handing off to whoever is holding the bag still in Gaza uh, and going back. Mm -hmm. Noting that I understand why they would not want to reoccupy Gaza. Again, they gave it up in 2005 for a reason. Uh, but again, all these, there are no good choices here. These are all relatively bad choices. The question is, which one is the least bad and has the most prospect uh, for providing what you really want, which is to ensure that Hamas mm. is never able to do this again. Um, but to ensure that, you can't allow the Hamas political uh, wing to administer Gaza further. Mm. Mm. So, General, you also ran the CIA briefly, and we've all been discussing over the last 10 days just how this happened, uh, how such a big intel failure like this could take place. And I imagine it'll be many months until we have some answers there. But what I want to ask you is this, an Intel failure, I imagine, would shake confidence in the system. And even so, Israel is now embarking on its biggest operation in years. So how might the failures of the past few weeks at an operational level, at a confidence level, affect Israel's capabilities over the next few weeks? Well, I think what it has done clearly is to uh, redouble the determination. I mean, they they feel terrible about this. The Shin Bet director has actually issued a statement about this failure. Because uh, keep in mind, this is treated as internal security Gaza in the West Bank. So it's a Shin Bet matter. But Shin Bet is an extraordinary organization. I had a wonderful relationship with them uh, and with Mossad as well, the external intelligence uh, organization and with the military intelligence and the signals intelligence unit 8200 as well in the military. Uh, but it's clear that all of them, but, but Shin Bet in particular, because this is their mission, they're normally literally upstream of something like this happening. In other words, they see it being planned. They are anticipating it. They can actually often forestall, prevent, preclude these kinds of actions from taking place. And what's very clear is that Hamas dramatically improved its operational security. It probably even included a disinformation uh, element to it, knowing apparently the sources and methods that Shin Bet and the other agencies employ, uh, and then 
even in those channels, making it as if they are not planning anything while they were with very good operational security, carrying out the very detailed planning, the training and the equipping, the positioning, uh, and then the execution of a diabolically creative plan, which included blinding uh, the Israeli military elements in that area by taking out the nodes, the, the retransmission, the communications towers uh, that actually are the critical element to conveying these feeds, the video feeds from all the different surveillance systems uh, and so forth. So at a crucial moment, uh, they didn't see what was happening. It also coincided with a religious holiday, not unlike the Yom Kippur War, of course. Uh, military units had people on leave. The readiness of the military was obviously inadequate as well. The response was slower than it normally would have been. I, I suspect that some of this is attributable as well to the shift in emphasis and priority to the West Bank, where there's been a fair amount of unrest in, in recent months, and then perhaps even to the domestic turbulence that we have seen in Israel. That is, after all, there are domestic threats uh, as part of that. And when you looked at those enormous demonstrations and so forth, that's more than, again, just the police can mm -hmm. handle. There has to be an intelligence component. And so in, in a way, uh, all of these different factors came together uh, to enable a situation in which the Hamas terrorists could carry out these brutal and unspeakable acts. So I'm seeing a slight shift over the last few days in how the White House is talking about the Middle East. Yeah, Initially, President so. Biden uh, stood by Israel completely. And then on 60 Minutes on Sunday, he said quite clearly that Israel shouldn't take over the Gaza Strip. And I'm wondering, as things heat up in the coming days and as more civilians die in Gaza, how do you think the U.S. position might change? Well, I've, I've seen the same evolution. I think it's quite natural. Uh, it's not unlike, you know, what happened after the 9-11 attacks. There's a visceral uh, desire for revenge, uh, for vengeance. Um, that's the initial response, and it's very understandable. And you, you saw the rhetoric that resulted from that, particularly from the prime minister and some of his ministers, even a very prominent ambassador that you'll know. He used to be in New York uh, here at the U.N., um, and then, though, there's starting to be more thinking about this and, and a recognition, I think, about what we've been discussing, which is what next? What else do we have to do? Again, it's not sufficient. Military action is necessary. It's imperative, uh, but it's not sufficient. You need a comprehensive approach. You know, in the surge in Iraq, it wasn't all about just clearing the enemy and then holding it and then rebuilding and all the rest of that, there was a vision for the Iraqi people that life will be better if you support us as we clear Al-Qaeda from your neighborhoods or clear the Iranian-supported Shia militia from these other neighborhoods. And we held out a vision of that. And then we actually started to show them what it could be. And I think there's got to be that kind of component here. So I think the U.S., as they're thinking through this, is in that kind of discussion and dialogue and what the president probably seeks to do is to really further that at the level uh, of the prime minister and then of the Arab country leaders who are going to convene in Amman, Jordan as well, together with the Palestinian Authority uh, uh, leader. Mm -hmm. So all of that, I think, is what's going on. And of course, just the reality on the ground with the dimensions of uh, the humanitarian 
uh, situation that is there where many of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are in a very desperate situation and also watching the, what is inevitable but still terrible, and that is loss of innocent civilian life as targeted operations nonetheless still do uh, have collateral damage, both in terms of damage and destruction of civilian infrastructure. Keep in mind, again, Hamas is an enemy that, you know, not only doesn't wear uniforms, uh, but hides among the population, its headquarters, bases, and facilities, all of which have to be destroyed if you're to destroy uh, Hamas, according to the doctrinal term, those are positioned underneath hospitals. Uh, they're in tunnels. Uh, they're in mosques. Uh, again, this is an enemy that doesn't observe the Geneva Convention, to put it mildly. And by the way, the Israelis will. They will seek uh, to, to practice purity in arms, as it's termed, their interpretation, which is very much in line with the laws of land warfare. Democracies do have to fight at a higher standard. And if you had to weigh into all of this, the the fact that Hamas has close to 200 uh, hostages, how would you plan operations knowing that that is this immensely human complicating factor? Again, and you've added the additional component to this that makes it so fiendishly difficult. Um, but again, obviously, you're trying to gather all the intelligence that you can on where they are. Uh, unfortunately, I'm sure that Hamas is not going to do what uh, happened in Entebbe, where they're all together roughly, and you can send in a special mission unit, uh, achieve surprise and rescue them all, albeit that raid, of course, you'll recall, uh, the leader of that organization was the prime minister's brother, uh, and he was killed in that. But again, this is going to be, again, much more difficult than, than that was by many orders of magnitude. So it's just an additional complicating factor and understandably another whole set of emotions that we've seen on TV and so forth from those whose loved ones are being held hostage. Uh, and that, it brings in a conflicting element here as well, a desire for negotiations rather than for going in and beginning the clearing, the holding, the rebuilding process that is necessary. You know, it's almost better to think about this as an if you if an intellectual construct. The campaign here is not a conventional military operation. This is not the Gulf War Part One. This is not tank on tank. Uh, and again, the enemy doesn't even wear uniforms. So this is not the Yom Kippur War. This is a counterinsurgency campaign that's that's being launched, and that's important because it has not just offensive and defensive components to it but it has the stability operations component. And that is the nation building aspect of this. Again, the restoration of basic services, the establishment of local governance, uh, gradual institution of the rule of law, restoration of markets, schools, hospitals, clinics, all of this. And that's the kind of thinking that has to go into this, noting again, how difficult that is in this situation, given that Israel doesn't want to take over Gaza, and the, the President of the United States, our most important supporter, has cautioned them against doing that. So let me ask you this, uh, General. A lot of analysts have invoked 9-11 in the last 10 days. It's worse uh, than 9-11. I mean, again, we have to really appreciate that this is, we lost nearly 3,000 uh, innocent civilians in the attacks on 9-11 per capita, given that Israel's now lost 1,300 and the accounting is still going on. 
sure. uh, would be the equivalent of way over 40,000 Americans lost. And of course, it's the single worst loss uh, for Israelis, for Jews, since the Holocaust. It, it really is. And it's it's just awful. But I, what I want to ask you, when you invoke 9-11, and 9-11 was pivotal for America in so many senses, but it led to, you know, a war on terror for the yep. better part of two decades yep. that yep. had impacts on American yep. standing around the world. Yep. No, there's and, a cautionary tale here. And again, we carried out enhanced interrogation techniques because we felt right. that strategic ticking time bomb scenario. And and again, we should these lessons should be in the front of the minds of the Israeli decision makers and the Israeli military and the intelligence community. Uh, again, they should recognize that we took actions that we look back on later on and, you know, wince a bit and said, perhaps we would like to have a redo of that. So this, again, quest for vengeance has to be measured. It has to be thoughtful. It's necessary. There should be vengeance. It, what took place was horrific, but that needs to be done in a very thoughtful way with a vision that lays out what the future will be more than just having destroyed Hamas as a military organization, also the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, by the way, another five or more thousand uh, terrorists, and leave. And do you think America has leverage to pass on that message and that lesson from 9-11 that you're describing? I think we do. I think other leaders in the world do. And frankly, I'm quite confident that within the uh, Israeli po policy-making circles, there are those who will have those lessons in the forefront of their mind as well. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, General, when we first planned to sit down together, we were hoping to discuss that other war that's taking place in Europe, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I'm wondering, before we get into the state of the war there, how you think Russian President Putin might be trying to take advantage of the situation in the Middle East? Well, Putin, I'm sure, is pleased to see this development, as are other potential adversaries and actual adversaries around the world. It might preoccupy the U.S. and the West. Um, he might hope that it will divert supplies that otherwise would have gone to Ukraine. He may hope that those on Capitol Hill will think that it's mutually exclusive to continue to support Ukraine and also to add uh, new support for Israel. I don't believe it is. I believe the U.S., in fact, is uniquely responsible for keeping more plates spinning, if you will, to use the uh, metaphorical image of the guy in the circus tent who gets a plate on a stick. In fact, I would contend that there are more plates that we have to keep spinning right now, and they're more complex than at any time, at least since the end of the Cold War, if not World War II. 
but we can do this. Uh, this is possible. Uh, we can do all of it. We can also, by the way, provide additional resources for the southern border, uh, for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and, and for Taiwan, for that matter. Package all of that together. We can do that. Uh, and the, there's not the opportunity cost uh, that is there. But no, I'm sure that he is pleased to see this and, and also will seek to drive a wedge between, say, the U.S. and Europe or Israel and Europe or, again, any opportunity that they can, they're going to take and the Iranians will be right there with them in trying to do the same thing. So I just have to press you on that a little bit. You say America can do all of these things, um, but there's no speaker in the House. The House couldn't even pass a resolution to condemn what's going on in the Middle East. Um, how does that impact America's engagements around the world? It's obviously uh, very difficult. It's detrimental. I, I've been in recent weeks in several locations in Europe and then met with a number of international uh, individuals, especially at the Warsaw Security Forum, because it was a huge group of representatives of various countries. And the question they have for us, for Americans, is what is going on? Um, can you function? Uh, when is there going to be additional assistance uh, for Ukraine? I think we have actually done a very impressive job. Uh, and I'll point out for the listeners, I don't even register with a party, much less vote. And I talk to members of either party uh, on a regular basis as well. I was quite critical of this administration uh, over the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, to which I felt there were alternatives that would have had uh, been better, however frustrating and unsatisfactory they might have been. Um, but in this case, I think the administration, together with the bipartisan support on Capitol Hill, has done a very impressive job leading NATO in the Western response uh, to the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I'd note that I wish there were some faster decisions on certain items than, than there were that is, it prevented uh, Ukraine from having our tanks and all of the Leopards that they would have had now or Western aircraft or a variety of other capabilities. But that said, $44 billion is a staggering amount of security mm -hmm. assistance. Uh, the Europeans, by the way, we believe now there's a group that's aggregating all that they have done. We think they may actually have surpassed that in terms of the pledges versus our pledges. So they're stepping up and they've far long since surpassed the financial, economic, and humanitarian assistance that we've provided, in which they should be doing. I do believe, though, that you know, once this is sorted out in the House, uh, we know there is not just strong bipartisan support in the Senate for continued aid to Ukraine, but actually even in the House, there is actually quite solid bipartisan support. It's just that a handful of members that have a conviction uh, thinking this is unwise have prevented it from happening. So if there is leadership, then maybe they can package all of these different items together that I described, which would be a very wise move forward. Mm. So over the last few months, there's been frustration, I would say, on the state of Ukraine's counteroffensive. Uh, there are many analysts who've been saying it's going too slowly, it's not achieving its goals, the war is grinding on, and all of this in the backdrop of what you're describing in Washington, where you know there's this sort of ticking kind of clock that leads to next year's election. Mm -hmm. And if there's a change in administration, there could be a change in America's approach towards Europe. You wrote a, an article a few months ago that uh, I would say surprised a lot of people. You said that Ukraine could surprise everyone, that its counteroffensive 
may actually be doing better than people imagine, but also that things can change suddenly. Can you expand on that? Again, yeah. And again, it was qualified, it's cautious, but it was just pointing out that that is all possible, that the Russians could crumble, they could crack. Again, the Ukrainians know what they're fighting for. And I was just there again four weeks ago, by the way, and I was there four months uh, prior to that. And I should just note, by the way, that I spent time with the uh, commander-in-chief, he's called, of the Ukrainian military. Um, and, you know, having commanded a couple of wars myself, there was, you know, a degree of simpatico there. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, I was on the receiving end of the 9,000-mile screwdriver from Washington as well. And, you know, this, you know, take heart. Um, welcome to the National Football League. Um, but they adapted uh, effectively. The problem is, of course, that that adaptation means that they're gaining maybe 100 meters a day rather than several kilometers a day, because again, they just didn't have the armored breaching systems nor the air power uh, to enable them to conduct the kind of combined arms breaches that, that we hoped might be possible some months way back uh, before recognizing the, how formidable these defenses are. Again, these minefields are miles deep, not just hundreds of meters deep, and they're just beyond the capacity of the Ukrainians and what we have provided to them. We just didn't provide enough of the really big armored bulldozers and line charges and all the rest of this to get through that kind of depth of minefields. And then literally the density of the minefields is, is extraordinary as well. So they're picking through it, 10-man squads are fighting tree line to tree line. There can come a point where the Russians do crack. Again, the Ukrainians look over their shoulder, they see what they're fighting for. It's their independence, it's their uh, survivability. It's their people. The Russians look around in the areas where they're defending and what they see are a bunch of Ukrainians that are trapped in an occupied area who hate them. Um, and they're not, you know, the command climate in the Russian forces uh, leaves something to be desired to put it mildly, etc. We also should recognize the damage that Ukraine has done to the ability of the Russians to use Crimea as a location for their naval vessels. The port of Sevastopol has largely had to be evacuated because of very, very impressive maritime drones created by, manufactured by, and then employed by uh, the Ukrainians. Um, we've also seen very good use of uh, uh, air drones to even hit the North Sea Fleet headquarters during their command and staff meeting, which is uh, quite impressive as well. And they've then have gone after a number of uh, airfields and logistical depots and so forth. So they've degraded that. The problem is it takes time for that degradation to actually start to show in terms of uh, inadequate support for the Russian forces. And if they can get, achieve the objective of the summer offensive, which is now the fall offensive, and they say they're going to keep going throughout the winter. I was uh, on stage with the National Security Advisor of Ukraine in one of the events that we did. He said, we're going to keep on fighting all winter. It may slow down, may mire some of these heavy track vehicles, but we're going to keep going on foot. Uh, if they can get within range of that route that comes from Russia along the southeast coast and eventually to the forces that are just north of Crimea, that would be significant. And if you can degrade that critical line of communications, then you can start to uh, undermine the logistical sustainability of the Russian forces. They're not close to that yet. But again, I, you cannot rule that out. Uh, and as you quoted correctly, you know, unexpected things happen in war. Uh, what we should be doing in the meantime is everything we possibly can 
to enable the Ukrainians not just to succeed in this particular offensive, but to, over time, demonstrate to Vladimir Putin that this war is unsustainable for Ukraine. He still thinks right now, I'm quite certain, that the Russians will be able to outsuffer the Ukrainians, the Europeans, and the Americans. This is a contest of wills as well as a contest on the battlefield. But we also need to continue to tighten the financial, economic, and personal sanctions and export controls, uh, and also to go after the those who are evading these sanctions very aggressively. And, and, and to the, the credit of those at Treasury, uh, they recently announced sanctions mm-hmm. against 150 different companies that they have identified that are carrying out actions that evade the sanctions. So I'm detecting some frustration on your part about the slowness of how America is supplying Ukraine. You know, and Ukraine tends to ask for things and then the White House says no, no, no. And then weeks later, months later, it ends up saying yes. Given where we are now, what else should the White House try to do or try to give Ukraine? And Part of why I ask you this question is you said earlier in this interview that America can do it all. Um, It can conduct operations in all these arenas. Can it uh, if it has to keep supplying Ukraine? $44 billion out of an $850 billion uh, defense package is not undoable. Um, Nor, by the way, was $25 billion for continued presence in Afghanistan. And You know, when that decision was announced uh, to follow through with the agreement that was reached by the previous administration, I said that I feared that we would come to regret that decision. I I do believe that the outcome there has not just been heartbreaking and tragic. I I feel that it's been disastrous. But again, we have the capacity to do this. Yes, we should do things more efficiently at times. We should do them more effectively, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But this is not beyond our capacity. These are not mutually exclusive. They're not huge opportunity costs, Uh, even with respect to what our main focus is, rightly, uh, is deterrence in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, where we are hardening our forces, dispersing them, taking them underground, defending them better, assembling a a very important group of allies and partners, transforming our forces from a small number of large platforms to a massive number of unmanned uh, systems and all of that. But again, we can do all of this. We have the capacity. We can keep all of these different plates spinning. Now, we shouldn't look for more plates to keep spinning. We shouldn't go out you know, in search of dragons to slay and all the rest. It should be a thoughtful foreign policy. But when these issues arise, uh, we do have to answer them. And if we do not, by the way, then others will take lessons from them. I remember being out in Southeast Asia when the red line turned out not to be a red line and a prime minister of a very important partner country said, General, you know, that reverberates out here. There are echoes of that. When we withdrew from uh, Afghanistan and then had that withdrawal in the manner that it was conducted, President Xi publicly said, see, can't count on the Americans, an undependable partner and ally, and look at how that went. Uh, They're also a great power in decline. So again, there are ramifications of what we do in different locations. Again, to be fair, I think the the uh, U.S. has responded very impressively, but I felt that some of these decisions that were just plain inevitable, I mean, you were going to have to provide Western aircraft at some point in time because there were no more Soviet bloc or Russian bloc MiGs or anything like that to give to Ukraine. And yet we delayed that to the point that they probably really won't be flying until uh, late winter. 
uh, it would have been really helpful if they could have had those uh, for the offensive. The same with the decision on tanks. Um, I understand why we didn't want to provide our tank. It's very difficult to maintain 1,500 horsepower jet turbine versus two 750 horsepower diesels in the Leopard um, and 10 tons heavier than those, which crushes roads and bridges. I got all that. But that was key to getting the Germans to make the decision on the Leopard tanks, which was the really crucial decision. And having been in Berlin last fall, mid-fall, it was clear to me they were dug in. They were not going to make that decision until we provided. They actually said, just, just commit three M1s and we'll make the decision on the Leopards. In the end, we gave 31, as I recall. Uh, and they are there now, by the way. Uh, and by the way, another revelation in the last 24 hours is that we may have provided the longer range, the Army tactical missile system uh, munition for the multiple launch rocket system that we provided uh, last year. And that's very encouraging. And we provided apparently the one that has the cluster munitions, which can really render airfields and, and other locations at a range now of up to 300 kilometers, roughly uh, uh, unusable. So uh, again, we are making these decisions in, at times, I wish that we would make them a bit faster. General David Petraeus, you are the co-author of a terrific new book, Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Thank you for your time. Great to be with you, Robbie. Really a privilege. Thank you. And that was General David Petraeus, also the former head of the CIA. Next week, Fiona Hill. If you are wondering what Russian President Vladimir Putin is making of the war in the Middle East and how he's going to take advantage of it, Hill is just the person to speak with. She has advised several US presidents on Russia policy and will give us the latest on the war in Ukraine, among other things. That is it for now. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. and columnist Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy Ish. Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of The Mary Trump Show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's, there aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist, fascist party. Brian Tyler Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. It, they understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts.